All right. Now, I think the sound of the microphone is on, so I might proceed. I'd like to read to you the sermon text from Revelation chapter 21, and then we'll bow in prayer and ask that the words of our mouths and meditation of our heart might be acceptable in God's sight. Hear the word of God from Revelation chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits, I'm sorry, and, and, to, the se grace, and, and to the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. This is the reading of God's word. We pray, Lord, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts might be acceptable to you, our strength and our redeemer. We pray, Lord, that any words that are not from you will see seemingly pass away and be forgotten. But those words that you have for our hearts and minds and souls, Lord, drill it down deep into our hearts that we might live and not die, that we might experience the joy of our salvation, that we might see the greatness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory now and forevermore. Amen. Well, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. I had intended to be here several months ago, and then the pandemic came. So uh, Pete said, let's do a rain check. And since it was raining today, this seems like a good day to have a rain check. So I am here to uh, share with you. And really, um, uh, Randy has already mentioned that Peter is on vacation. Um, the, the word out in the street is 
that his wife said, you know, you've kept your nose to the grindstone for a long time, and, and I think you need to take some time off. So bless your pastor and remember him in your prayers. Uh, I, I looked at your uh, website yesterday, and I really love what you said. It, it says there, we exist to know, worship, and serve the triune God. And the message I have today is really about knowing, worshiping, and serving the triune God. So I, I'm going to emphasize that. And then I do have a word of exhortation that goes beyond the text. It's from Revelation 2 and 3. So please stick with me. I, I'm excited the fact that uh, you have made it your purpose to know, worship, and serve the triune God. And uh, that's, that's what I'm about too. So let's, let's get on with it and make the most of it this day. Uh, one more uh, word of introduction. Right where the hand sanitizers are on that table outside, uh, there's about 50 copies uh, of some notes that I wrote uh, pertaining to the, uh, the marks of a healthy church and, and the, the seven qualities uh, that the Lord addresses in the seven churches in uh, Asia Minor. So you're welcome to pick those up from the table when you leave. Uh, and uh, if you need more, uh, Pete just needs to talk to me and we'll make sure you get some. Okay? So here we are. Um, the book of Revelation. Uh, some people are scared of it. Uh, my gosh, there's so many wild, weird things in there. I, I, I don't know where to begin. Uh, others uh, say, well, it, it's an unveiling. It is a revealing. The word revelation means uh, something's going to be revealed. And, um, uh, and so it, it should be uh, something I could understand. And then others say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, a letter, a pastoral letter to seven churches. Well, it's all of that. It, it is wild and weird. There's no doubt about that. But there's many things that we can understand and uh, while uh, I was enduring the pandemic, after reaching for the book of Psalms, I reached for the book of Revelation. And I said, you know, this seems strangely like the time is near, which it says right in uh, verse 3 of this text, the time is near. It could be near. And I want to find out one more time what a pastor would say to his churches if indeed the time was near and the Lord was going to come. And so every day during the, the month uh, from the announcement of shelter in place to uh, Easter Sunday, I, I wrote devotions and ended up with 27 of them and then added more devotions for the seven churches but, uh, and I put it into a booklet. But the long and short is, uh, it, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, I'm not a person that likes to stay home alone and uh, have nothing to do, no interaction with people. I, I don't know about you. Quarantine just doesn't sound like my kind of thing. Uh, sheltering in place, social distancing, that's not me. So I needed to find something uh, that, that would encourage my soul and build me up in my holy faith and, and so the book of Revelation, and, and day after day, it was so exciting to me uh, to realize that God had promised a blessing for reading this out loud, a blessing to, if you hear it, a blessing if you take it to heart. And so I said, I've got to get in here. 
Now, like most scriptures, well, like all scriptures, Revelation is a, is, you have to ask, uh, who's the author? And, and John does a good job trying to explain, well, who is the author of this book? It, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So it's actually God that's the author, but it's through Jesus Christ. But wait a minute that uh, he made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all that he saw. So John is like every other good preacher. He, he has a word to preach, but if he's being faithful and true, he says, well, it's not really my word. It's God's word through Jesus Christ, sent by angels, sent by messengers, and, and it's arrived in my hands, in my mind, in, in my eyes, in my vision. And so my job is to be faithful and to pass it along. So I'm down the line 2,000 years, and I'm the next carrier of this to you that you might be blessed. God's the author, Jesus Christ, engaged deeply in it, sent by messengers through John to the churches. We're not one of the seven churches, but we need to learn a lot from those seven churches, and, and so here's the message. It's a wonderful word of encouragement throughout. And in fact, the thing I saw most notably as I poured over the first chapter, it, it's, it's, a, it's an order of worship. Now, I, I really appreciated the big print in, in your bulletin and the, all, the, all the things that were accompanying it. Um, your order of worship is, is not that different from John's order of worship, which he follows during uh, his first chapter presentation. For example, verse 4 comes with an opening blessing, what we might call our call to worship. And he says, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. We're being called to worship. We're being given grace and peace from the eternal and triune God. The eternal Father is strong to save, and he will outlast Rome, which was the problem of that day. He's still outlasting empires and nations. The nations, as Isaiah says, are like a drop in the bucket, right? And uh, like dust on the scales. And, and uh, he, he can dust off the scales at any time. But God, the Father, is eternal. Uh, this, this call to worship comes from the Spirit of God, who is sent with power to carry out the Father's bidding. That Spirit was with them and in them, and then this call to worship comes from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, 
and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Man, that's who's beckoning us to listen. You've been called to worship by the gracious king of peace. And everything that you need for life and godliness is, is offered to you. So how will you respond to the triune God? Well, there's an inscription of praise uh, that John writes next. And it's in verse uh, five and, or 6 and following. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I have 14 grandchildren. Twelve of them are granddaughters. We specialize in that. And two grandsons. And the thing that I want for them is to ascribe praise to God with their whole heart, soul, mind, spirit. Everything about them would praise God. Why? Because he's freed them from their sins. He loves us. And by his blood, he has made us a kingdom and priest to serve his God. He has made them eternal beings. His grace and peace has come to them. And so the call comes to us. Ascribe honor and glory and, and praise to the living God. We exist to worship the triune God, the lover of our soul, our great redeemer, the one who calls us and makes us a kingdom and priest. So the worship has been called order. We've ascribed praise to God. And now John says in verse 7 and 8, I want to give you an assurance of God's victory. I don't know about you, but there's, uh, I've met a lot of people who are hanging their heads these days. They're, they're discouraged, they're disappointed, they're depressed, they're despondent. You, you can alliterate the words... They're not sure that things are going to work out. Uh, there's, there's people that write articles that we discuss about um, the coming demise of the church or the collapse or this or that negative thing that's going to happen. Our economy is uh, you know, just in tatters and shattered and all that stuff. But here John uh, says, Behold, he is coming in the clouds. And every eye will see him. And those who have pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. I am Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Let me ask you a simple question. Is anything too difficult for God? If God is, in fact, El Shaddai, Almighty, then nothing is too difficult for him. And his plans will prevail because he is the almighty, irresistibly powerful God. He is coming and he will bring to fruition what he has promised. This is hope overcoming despair. This is certainty overcoming confusion. This is the holy Christian faith that has been given to us overcoming our fears. I was in um, 
Sioux Center in Northwest Iowa visiting our daughter and son-in-law and their daughter. And uh, this is a fine Christian town, reformed roots, a couple Christian uh, colleges in the area. And um, people have signs on their uh, streets. They're not political signs. They're not um, science is real signs, uh, those kinds of things. Um, a simple sign that just says, God's got this. The assurance of victory is in the scriptures. And if we hold on to them, we have a solid ground on which to stand. I trust that in your order worship, week after week, you hear that assurance of the victory of Almighty God. God's got this. And then the uh, order of service goes on with a compelling testimony. I, I love it when there are testimonies. Today we had a musical testimony as Chris and our oboist came together and, and uh, shared the glorious music and the certainty of the scriptures. It's a compelling testimony. John used words in his compelling testimony. Uh, first of all, it... It was words that connected with them. He said of the people that were receiving this letters, you're my brothers, and let's say sisters too, because he meant it generically. All the people that were in the seven churches that he loved and had been uh, leading over the years until he was put in exile. You are partners. Uh, uh, we are partners in the tribulation and in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus, that made John an ideal go-to person as they lived their faith during difficult times. Now, I just wonder if you have a go-to person, someone who is a brother or sister of yours, someone who is a partner, someone who has gone through some of the struggles that you're going through now, someone who has a, that same precious faith that you have, Someone that will lend an ear and say, I know, I understand. Let me pray for you that your faith fail not. We're partners. That's a compelling thing about a, a person who shares a testimony. They, they identify with you. Whew, thanks, I needed someone that, that understood me, that had gone through something that I'm going through. But on the other hand, what made his testimony so compelling is that he understood and knew God. He, he had the experience of being with God in, uh, in the wilderness, in, on that rocky crag of an island called Patmos, and, and God had spoken to him. And, and so what we have in his testimony is adoration of Christ with the finest quality of audio and visual. John heard that air-piercing trumpet sound and then commanding words followed by an overwhelming revealing of Christ in all his glory. The best way to describe it is John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So what was it that John saw? A superb vision of Christ. The Son of Man reigning. The glorious King. 
his head, his eyes, his feet, his voice, his mouth, his face, all communicating his uniqueness. He is the radiance of God's glory, says the writer of Hebrews. He, uh, the, he is like the sun shining in the full strength. Don't lose sight of the vision of Christ that John brings to the churches. They will be spoken to each church as the occasion requires. But most encouraging of all, he tells us that this Jesus holds in his right hand the seven stars and the seven lamps, that is, the seven angel messengers that are sent to the churches, and he holds the churches in his hands. So he says, fear not. Well, how, how is that a antidote to fear? Because God is not just looking out there to see if you're doing all right. God is holding on to you. You get it? See the difference? God is not just folding his arms and saying, oh, they're having a lot of problems down there. God's intimately involved. He is embracing you, and he, he cares about what happens in your life, and he's not going to let you go. Be encouraged. He walks along among the lampstands. The Lord Jesus Christ is in his church. Amen? Most important, Jesus has a word for the churches, which he asks John to write down and then deliver to the churches. That leads us to what would be the, the next part of a worship service, exhortation from the word. It's sometimes called the sermon. And I read the sermon text, and now the sermon, the exhortation part, some part of it is encouragement, some part of it is warning, some part of it is uh, watch out. John has a pastor's heart inspired by God, and his function is to do what all good pastors do, provide um, ministry as a spiritual director. I'm sure that Pete knows you well, Pastor Scribner. How do you call him? Pete? Pastor Pete? Reverend Scribner? All those and more, okay? I, I know that I, I would be sure that Pete has a pastor's heart for you. And as a spiritual director, he wants to talk to you individually and corporately. What does John have to say to the churches? Well, uh, the word is he has plenty. In chapter 2 and 3 uh, are words, again, that John has received from God through Jesus Christ by messengers sent to him and revealed to him on the island of Patmos for the benefit of the seven churches. Now, as I looked at those seven churches and looked at the method of um, speaking to those churches, I said, you know, some of these words don't seem to be all that positive. And then uh, some were positive, 
and then there was a call to change, and then there were some consequences. So I, I did a little grid and said, if, if I was going into a church to try to sense where they're at, what, what should happen in the church, is I, I might ask these four questions. The first is, what's commendable in the churches? And if we had moved from sermon to Sunday school classroom, got a whiteboard out or, or put stick, sticky notes on the wall, we would put all the things that are commendable about the church. And then the next one, what is corrupt in the churches? And that's where everybody gets a little sweaty. Well, you know, well, no, we're a fine church. We're doing good. We, we got it together. We got, we got this. God's got us. We got this. It's all hunky-dory. See, but there is a question that some churches, of course, not yours, it has to ask, what is corrupt in the churches? And there is something corrupt in almost all the seven churches here. Third, what does Jesus call them to change about their churches? Now, this is where we get, you know, sweaty under the collar, hot under the collar. Change, I'm not comfortable with the word change. I'm comfortable with being comfortable. I'm comfortable with the way things are. We've never done it that way before. We've always done it this way before. And change, why do you ask that question about change? But it is one of the things that John interjects from God through his son by the messenger to each of the churches there's something that probably has to be changed and then the last question is well what will be the consequences of the choices that each of the seven churches make holding on to what's good getting rid of what is corrupt changing what needs changing uh, what if they make the change what if they don't make the change? So, so that's the grid by which I looked at seven churches. And um, then uh, I said, okay, this is serious business. These things are truths spoken in love, but nonetheless, they, they itch a little bit. They, they make us wonder, where are we at? Today's focus will be on the seven marks of a healthy church. John Stott is, was famous for uh, his book, What Christ Thinks of the Church, among other books of his. And he did an analysis of the seven churches. We are not going to go through all seven churches. We are, but I would like to pick something up from three of the churches and then ask you to do a little assessment of yourself. So the first exhortation is this. A healthy church is a loving church. And of course the implied question is, are you a loving church? And how would you know? And if you weren't, what would you do about it? And what would be the consequences if you ignore that message? Okay, so a healthy church is first of all a loving church. It's the church in Ephesus, identified in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, who is the target of this exhortation. Uh, a loving church is, first of all, a church that loves the Lord God Almighty and his Son, Jesus Christ. It, it, a love is a response to God's initiative. It is the overflow uh, of, of his grace to us that we love him. We love 
because he first loves us. Now, listen carefully to this. No church is worth maintaining which does not first love the Lord. No church is worth maintaining. It might as well go out of business. Sell it to the Baptist or whoever uh, you know, comes your way. But a healthy church is a loving church. A church's work, toil, endurance cannot compensate for lovelessness. Her orthodoxy cannot be brought up as a substitute for lovelessness. Remember now, the Lord holds the churches in his arms. He is intimately concerned about them. There's no question about his love for the people of the church. He loves them with an everlasting love. He's drawn them to himself with cords of kindness. His love will not let them go, but he will not tolerate lovelessness. If a church loses its love for God, it must repent. If it does not, it does not have a future. He says to the church in Ephesus, I will remove your lampstands. I will close it down. On the other hand, the church that loves God will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God, and what a future that will be. That will be bridegroom and bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That will be joy forever and ever. The first mark of healthy church is that it loves God. So how do we know if we're a loving church? Consider a bride and a bridegroom. In the past year, I attended three weddings. Uh, three single women, no, four single women came to our small group in our house uh, two years ago, and, and uh, we, we talked about relationships, and over the next year, three of the four women found the, the man of their dreams, and they got married. And we were invited to all three of the weddings, and, and we watched these relationships develop and and uh, we saw a lot about closeness and intimacy and caregiving, and uh, we related to God. You know, God wants us to build a, an intimate relationship with him, one in which we are, are close to him. As lovers of God, we want to be with him because we adore him. We have seen his Calvary love for us, and, and so we want to respond to him. My wife is a lover of God, and she expresses herself emotionally. We can hardly get through that great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, uh, without tears in her eyes. That last verse especially, it says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart my soul, my all. And, and uh, she's just enjoying the love that she has for God, a response to the love that he has for her. Is that how you respond to Christ? If not, or if that love has gone stale, remember what it was like at first. 
Repent of the coldness and return to him. Love for God is the first essential mark of the church. The second exhortation uh, concerns the issue of uh, being awake or being vital as a church. And I, I would simply say a healthy church is a revitalized church. Uh, the reference here is to the church in Sardis. Now, Sardis itself was a fortress city. It had a reputation that it could never be uh, invaded. History tells us that actually was invaded several times, but their reputation was solid. They, they believed they could never be invaded. They, they were solid. Uh, unfortunately, the church who shared that sense of um, solidity, impregnability, um, being really something, ha had lost a, a few steps. It had learned, um, well, had, had forgotten what they had learned. In fact, they were dying out. So John says, again, this is an exhortation that sounds a little too strong. You are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. This is by far the biggest challenge of all the words to the churches. I don't know if this will help you, but, but I found it to be fairly helpful to me. When I was thinking about a church that might not quite be awake, might not still be alive, uh, I'm thinking about students that were taking their classes in college uh, when, when the pandemic closed everything down and you had to do your studies online and there were some sort of lectures online and uh, so, so the, the semester would go on until the exam time and, and then you would get some sort of a grade. Uh, my uh, my son-in-law teaches at Dort University uh, and in the spring quarter he did his best to teach and he wondered how much the students were involved. Of course, every student thought that he or she would get a passing grade simply by the fact that they had enrolled in the class and that they were enduring the pandemic. They, they should be passed out of pity, if for nothing more. By the beginning of May, some had not even logged into the courses that were scheduled to end in less than a month. So what chances did they have of passing the, the class? Well, do you remember finals nightmares from the times you were in college? You, you, had, you had overslept and your roommate came in, wake up, the examination is happening in 10 minutes. And you burst out of bed, you head in there, you say, oh, I don't know how I'm ever going to deal with this. Uh, how, you know, I, 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 I overslept. I forgot. I didn't study. I just, you know, the, those nightmares are, are uh, 
you know, vintage, really vintage stuff. Um, of course, more to the point is the issue of, uh, of a church that's gone to sleep and is now about to expire. The Holy Spirit would say to that church, wake up, you're about to die, you've got examinations, then you have to meet before the Lord, and he, he is going to expose you for what's, been, what's going on in your life. The reputation is not enough. The Lord is going to in inspect you concerning the reality of the deadness and the necessity of revitalization. Not acting on what you've received or heard not keeping the word, not repenting when you've not um, done what God wants. That's the kind of thing that's being addressed in the church in Sardis. I have some good news for you. The presbytery has been given some money to work with. And we've sent a letter to the clerk of each session and to the pastor of each church and saying, if you need any help for revitalization, Write out a plan. Tell us your vision. Give us your uh, target, your new commitment, your, your mission. And uh, we, we can put some money together and help you make it through. So far, we've sent letters to 55 churches and have gotten zero responses. That's not a very good average, is it? Why? I mean, I, I personally think every church the healthy ones and the not-so-healthy ones, every church could stand revitalization. We're living in a, a, a secular culture that uh, eats our life, eats our lunch. It's, uh, it causes us to doubt ourselves, and, and uh, we see diminishing returns on our investments. And uh, we just, uh, you know, for one reason or another, people uh, don't find us or people leave us, and uh, we, we need to catch... A new wave. Uh, does this ring a bell with any of you? Does this sound like it could be something that you should consider? Um, revitalization, it is a crucial piece. I, I would have to say a church that refuses revitalization when it is dying will be met by the Lord, as John writes, like a thief in the night. At that point, it will be too late. It will be like, oh, no, the examination is coming in 10 minutes, and I don't have anything to show for my life. We don't have anything to show for our church. By happy contrast, that same church that deals with its deadness or, or, or diminishing, diminishment will live on with its name written in the book of life, confessed before God the Father and the angels as the comeback from the church dead miracle of Grace. <laughs> what would you like to be known as? Well, that was a really good church one time. Or, that's a comeback church. That church ought to get the Dr. Bart Hess Award for revitalization, which is something our denomination uh, awards every year to some church that has said, we are not going to stay where we are. We are going to burst out of this mold. We are going forward. Come back from the dead miracle of grace. The, the third exhortation, a healthy church is a church that welcomes Jesus. Now, some of you might have been 
part of this church going back. It's the only church you've ever known. Or maybe you've been with this church for 40 years. That's when our denomination started. And uh, this denomination is a faithful denomination. And this church has a wonderful reputation as being a faithful church. Some of you may have come here from other churches because that other church stopped being faithful. Uh, let me give you an illustration because I'm, I'm moving toward uh, the close and I want to talk to you about um, a church is healthy when it welcomes Jesus. But some churches don't welcome Jesus. That seems unbelievable, doesn't it? Why would a church exist that doesn't welcome Jesus? Here's the story. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. Wait a minute, that's a church. Why is Jesus on the outside of that church? Why isn't he in there? Why are they on the opposite sides of the door? Well, listen very carefully. You might not have realized it early on in your life when you were at, at that other church that had, that, that had dismissed Jesus. But there was one day you woke up and said, huh, we went through Christmas and we never heard about the incarnation of the Son of God. Or, or this, you know what? We just went through Lent and we got to Holy Week and um, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. We never heard about the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross who sacrificed his life, whose substitute uh, atoned for our sins, who satisfied the wrath of God by his dying between two thieves on a cross. We, we never heard that story. We didn't, we didn't know that part of the gospel because it was never presented. Holy Week was... Um, a group of churches in town all gathering together to talk about social justice and nothing more. Or, or then you get to Easter in that old church. He said, that's a funny thing. You know, I've been here three years. I haven't heard anyone talk about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I thought that was the glory of Easter. Someone had broken through the bonds of death. Death is ended. Hallelujah. Thankfully, Calvary is one of the faithful founders, and it's for 40 years been involved in the exposition of the scriptures, including the incarnation, the passion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension, his sure second coming and his welcoming his people home. So maybe this exhortation doesn't have anything to do with you. The church in Laodicea had the form, had the ritual, had, had the uh, order of service all in place. But Jesus looked at them. You think you're rich? You think you're well off? You think you're self-sufficient? Until the God made flesh, 
God-made flesh Savior is welcomed into your church as the Lord, that church is as far gone as the church in Sardis, which I've already described as dead, Jesus would say. Christ called the Laodiceans wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Its tepid witness was totally unappealing to Christ. It was a lukewarm water, the kind that he would certainly spit out of his mouth. Christ offered very strict counsel to this church as well. Buy from me, refined gold, white garments, I salve, be zealous and repent. Why is he so harsh? Very simply this, if a church loses Christ, it is lost. If a church doesn't welcome the incarnation of God and celebrate his death and resurrection, his propitiation of the wrath of God, it doesn't have anything left. Of course, that's not the last word. The last word is, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. So what did the Laodicean church do? Well, it doesn't say for sure. But take that last word, here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and Follow to the beginning of the next chapter where John says in verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, After that I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And I'd like to believe that the Laodiceans woke up. They realized that Jesus was outside of the door. They opened the door to him, and then Jesus opened the door to them to join him in heaven. I've been, besides doing book Revelation, I, I've been rereading C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and the last battle is about King Tyrion, who, who is in this great pitched battle of the enemies of Narnia, and uh, they look like they're, they're going to win when uh, in his sight he sees a door. And it seems like everyone who goes in the door dies, but it's the only chance he has uh, of um, escaping from these tyrants. And so he makes a decision. He plunges through the door. And what does he find? On the other side of the door, he finds the land beyond Narnia, where the further up you go and the further in you go, the better it gets until all the Narnians from all the stories reappear and are alive and all things are made new. So let me uh, conclude the exhortation. I think John would ask you to examine yourselves. Are you a loving or a loveless church? If the latter, repent. Are you a living or a lifeless church? Wake up, if that's the case. Are you a church that welcomes Jesus, or are you enjoying a lukewarm existence, tasteless without him, and wondering why you ever come back? Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. You who overcome will stand before the throne of God because that's what's on the other side of the door. 
And around the throne there are the four living creatures and the myriads of angels and the 24 elders, and they are all singing the glory of God. And you are intended at the end of the exhortation to join the exaltation. That's the end of worship. Exalting the Lord God. Would you pray with me?